Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Geekish Cast, an Astro Panda Production Network's podcast. Welcome back to Geekish Cast, episode number 163 with Alex J. Schumacher. We are going to get a word from our sponsor real quick, and I'll do some show updates, and I'll introduce you to our guest. Hey, thank you for hanging in there, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and I am back after a short no-live episode hiatus. There will be a live episode this coming Thursday, and our guest host will be Dominic Davi from the punk band Tsunami Bomb and also creator of the comic book company Dinosaur Factory. But joining us right now is Alex J. Schumacher, writer, illustrator, and drinker extraordinaire. What's happening, Alex? Hey, Jimmy. How are you? I'm a little hazy. Uh, the, the wildfires, as we record this, are still smoking up the valley pretty good. But That's right. I'm okay. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. A little hazy, not necessarily from the fires, just from uh, waking up. <laughs> just just <laughs> life. Just life, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. So just kind of hit your, your background here real quick. You are a cartoonist and uh, illustrator and writer. You've yes. got a couple recurring strips, a recurring column, and you did publish a graphic novel in 2013. So before we get into those specifically, how did you get into uh, indie and alt comics? Well, I actually was pursuing a career in syndicated comic strips for a little while when I first started getting back into it, just sort of by happenstance came across the Kevin Smith movie, Chasing Amy. And, you know, it's, it's an okay movie, but mm-hmm. through it, I found the artwork of Michael Allred, who does Madman at the time he was doing that. And, you know, of course now he's working on a bunch of DC books and Marvel. And he sort of was a throwback to the Kirby era and at the time, when you know, comic books were drawn by people like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, and then these very, you know, heavily intricately drawn panels and pieces. And so, with the way that I draw, I thought that well, maybe comic books weren't the way for me to go at the time. But when I saw Michael Allred's artwork, and then through him discovered, you know, Fantagraphics and image and drawn in quarterly and all of the indie publishers that were out there you know galvanized me to get back into comic books i noticed that one of your your strips you do is mr butter chips Mm -hmm. (laughs) now back in the olden days the 1990s for people who are historians and whatnot will remember there was an explosion of uh indie comics and black and white publishers a second time during that period yes and I, i actually had a drunken monkeys bowling shirt from that period of time Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
so and, that was, yeah, that's the magazine uh, they're called Drunk Monkeys who publishes Mr. Butterchips. Yeah, so uh, that that one definitely spoke to me because I did like that. Um, oh, you you and I met because because of a a friend of yours who I met on Twitter, but also because you guys or you were involved with the Alternative Press Expo this year. Yeah, I hadn't been there uh, for about four years, four or five years, and so it was my uh, first year back. Well, and they had sold that off, right? Yes, yeah, so Comic-Con, uh, the Comic-Con, uh, was running it for a long time, and they had um, procured the convention from uh, Dan Vado, who runs uh, Slave, Lab- Slave Labor Graphics, and so he... Got the com- or he got the convention back a few years ago, which was right after I did the last one. And so it's back in his um, <clears throat> Eddie Abel hands right now. I hadn't thought of the Alternative Press Expo in years because it had been a long right. time since I had gone to it. And then when after you and I had talked, <clears throat> I mentioned you to a couple other indie publishers, and they were like, well, they're not really indie friendly. And I'm like, Alternative Press Expo isn't indie <laughs> friendly? And that's when I discovered all the changes that had happened. And Yeah, and that was, I think, more of when they were under the employ of Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, understandably you know they were trying to bring in quote unquote indie publishers but bigger ones like dark horse and image and places like that that i don't really consider indie or alternative i haven't considered dark horse an indie publisher since they landed the star wars titles right yeah Yeah, it's been for uh, quite a long time yeah 25 years or so right um so anyhow after you decided that maybe comic books were possible for you what was your next step in getting from I want to be a cartoonist into a published uh, cartoonist? Well, the first thing I did was with a, a buddy of mine, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and so we self-published uh, our first book. He was writing it, and I was doing the artwork. And through that, we went to conventions, and I met other editors and publishers, you know, networked as you do at a convention, and started getting work with places like Viper Comics and... Um, a few other smaller presses like that. And since you aren't a guy who does superheroes and things, have you found Never. have you found that pretty tricky uh, breaking in, or what were your thoughts? You know, it would be if I was trying to be with you know Marvel or DC or or something like that. But that that's never really been my intent or my aspiration. I've you know always liked doing. I started out doing more supernatural sort of paranormal books along the line of Hellboy, or or like powers, you know, something like that. But very quickly found myself gravitating back towards the, you know, reality-based fiction, slice of life stuff, which is what I started doing when I was trying to get a comic strip syndicated. So that's just what ends up holding my interest and, you know, inspiring me and motivating me to tell stories is just all of the, you know, crazy stuff that happens in actuality. So I, I have to ask, at what point in your life was a drunken monkey punching people part of your slice of life storytelling? <laughs> that is a good question. Yeah. Um, he was actually, Mr. Butterchips was originally part of an ensemble uh, comic strip cast. And the comic strip itself never really went anywhere. And the other characters were not all that compelling or interesting to me but he i always found very funny and very fun to draw so when the magazine approached me about doing a monthly strip i thought he could be a very fun vehicle for 
talking about current events and politics and using a monkey who works as an organ grinder's assistant as a sort of, you know, parable for, you know, customer service or retail or some sort of menial job worker. <laughs> and it seems to have worked out and people enjoy it. So it's it's sort of a reflection of real life through a cartoon monkey. Since you kind of hit on the day job versus your passion thing, uh-huh. let's um, let's focus on something a little different here. A lot of times when you have people who want to break into, you know, quote unquote, break into comics, they're trying to draw a Spider-Man or, you know, the, the next big superhero story or try to become the next Mark Millar. Sure. When, when you're dealing with more like indie subject matter and black and white comics, I mean, and I'm not saying they never break through, but I'm saying your odds are a little bit lower right now. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, kind of what, what gets you going through the day, you know, when you, you still have to work your job, but now you got this thing you want to do, but it may be not because of the fame and glory that comes with it, but because you love doing it. Yeah. And I think for me, that's more of what it was is the realization that, you know, quote unquote, fame and fortune in comics is fleeting, if completely an unreasonable goal. And that's really not why you should be creating anyway, in my mind. So it became more about what I wanted to do and, you know, the stories that I wanted to tell and the characters that I wanted to write about, as opposed to something that I thought was going to make me money. And when I shifted to that kind of focus, it was a great outlet for me to come home from a day job or, you know, from whatever's going on in the world and be able to vent those frustrations or those epiphanies or, or what have you, uh, as opposed to the sort of self-flagellating <laughs> uh, goal of trying to break into Marvel or DC or become the next big thing in comics, which I think is just kind of a futile and worthless goal anyway. Well, it's, I mean, if, if it hits, that's that one in a million story. Sure. Um, and and that's know. great. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to, um, you know, refute that, <laughs> but it, it's not my main objective or my driving force either. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a, I was watching Welcome Back, Cotter the other night, and there's a throwback reference for everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Boom Boom was uh, going to be the next big basketball player, and, of course, right. uh, Mr. Cotter had to put him in his place and show him that a 38-year-old uh, teacher could play almost as well as he could. That's the other thing, too, is the realization that, no matter how good you think you are or no matter how good you are, there's always somebody that's better, number one, and there's always a million other people trying to do the exact same thing that you are. So, you know, have believing that you're going to find yourself in that one in a million position is just a little bit self-defeating, I think, and kind of sets you up for disappointment. Yeah, and not only that, but there's guys out there who are better artists than people working in any of the major publishers right now. Who are oh, yeah. never who are never going to be found? Absolutely, and you know that that goes across the borders of any kind of creative um, endeavor. Is you know the musicians who are professional, you know, multi-million dollar making musicians. There are a multitude of you know much better, much you know um, more talented musicians out there, and you know same goes for writing and dancing and. Uh, painting and any of those other um, milieus, I suppose, is yeah. there's always a bunch of other people out there that are going to be better and that are champing at the bit to take your place. Yeah, and, and well, and let's talk about that a little bit too, because you know sometimes it's luck, but sometimes it's just self promotion too. 
Yeah, I think it's it's a cocktail of the two and and hard work and productivity. Uh, those all and and this was something that I don't think I even necessarily realized until you know a few years ago that all of those things you have to be uh, kind of working at constantly and continually if you expect anybody to know who you are. You can't just throw a webcomic up on the internet and expect to be plucked from obscurity. You know, it's it's finding other people to help you promote your work. It's finding, you know, it's always being online promoting. It's continuously producing. If you, you know, if you say you're going to do a weekly comic, have it up every week. Um, yeah, and then it's it's people who you meet along the way who may have connections that can advance your career a bit too. Yeah, I think, well, and again, it's that hard work, but you also have to be in the right place at the right time. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, there's no... There is no substitute for luck, but there's also no substitute for hard work. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think one in this kind of a career or this kind of um, work that I'm doing, I don't think one can exist without the other. And I think the word luck takes on a little bit of a different meaning in this context. It's more of, um, you know, you you're the product of what you're doing and, you know, how well you're doing it and then who you meet. Oh, as, sure. opposed to, as opposed to, again, just sort of the stars aligning and somebody showing up at your front door and saying, hey, are you an artist by any chance? You know? Yeah. So. Well, and, and I'll take that. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had Kimberly Nicole, who's one of the creators of a web series called Sibs. And she was talking about how oh, yeah. she knows she knows actresses who stay home to make themselves available. Well, right. how, how does that, you know? You got a million so actors out there creating a web series to get seen, and people are sitting at home waiting to be found. You know, right? And that's my point too. Like you said, I mean, it's just so counterintuitive to say I'm going to stay home to be available, but you're not doing anything. So how do you expect people to see you? Yeah. Unless you're doing something like putting up a web series. If you're doing that and you're doing that on a constant basis, sure, people can find you that way. But if you're literally just sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things that I've noticed is that indie bands, web series creators, independent filmmakers, comic book, you know, self-publishers or whatever, um, it's it's all still the same stuff to get the word out. you got to get out there and shake a hand and slap somebody on the back and make a promise and show somebody something. So Absolutely. Yeah. What, what do you do or what have you done to help generate some interest in your work? I think, yeah, like sort of what you touched on, I think it still goes back to networking. You know, there's there's only so much that you can do in an online capacity. You know, there are a lot of tools at your disposal as far as, you know, on the, the Internet goes and what you can do to promote. But it's still about meeting people. It's still about making connections. So, you know, I've done that through going to conventions. I've done that through you know, email or phone exchanges with, you know, literary magazine editors or publishers that I've made contact with. And so I still absolutely wholeheartedly believe that it's about the personal connections that you make in the industry along the way that help you further your own career. And it could be, um, you know, mutually beneficial for whoever you're working for, but it's still about people that you meet and getting yourself out there. Like you said, you know, there's, uh, there's no, nothing that's going to help you about sitting at home. Yeah. 
unless you just have, hope to get larger physically and uh, not do a whole lot with your life. Yes, if, if that's what you mean by getting big, <laughs> the, the, the you know literal rotundness, then sure, you could do that by sitting at home and doing nothing, absolutely. Yeah. Might even win a uh, Guinness Book of World Records that way. You might. That's yeah. how you can find your fame, you know, if that's your aspiration in life. Yeah. Power to you. I have found it's good to have goals like that, you know? Sure, that's... and, and enjoyable, you know? That's yeah. That's good. I'm sure that's going to be a really fun endeavor. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the projects you've done. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Decades of Inexperience? Yeah, so this was uh, started almost two about two years ago now, actually, uh, with an editor named Francis Lombard. He was, he used to be an editor for Humanoids. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're a fairly large publisher. There were they are a French publisher. They um, they put out books by Mobius. That was his big publisher. Oh yeah, that yeah I do yeah absolutely yeah. So they were one of those big uh, uh, Franco-Belgium publishers, and they've moved to the states in in the past few years. Uh, so Francis used to work for them. Went off to start his own company called Antics Press. And we both have the same talent representation, so we were put in touch and decided to start this feature called Decades of Inexperience, and it was something that I wanted to do that was sort of, you know, a reflection or an expose of, you know, a late 20-something, 30-something, as it is nowadays, where it's, you know, not always this idyllic setting where you, you know, go to college find your job, find your dream job and start your life. I, I think the majority of people don't have that experience these days. And so I kind of wanted to put that down on the page and Francis was on board with it and has been a fantastic collaborator and editor. And we've just ran with it. And, you know, again, we've been doing it for about two years now. Is there a general character you follow or what's the setup of the strip itself? Yeah. So the main character is named Luke Carlin I hate character names. I hate coming up with them. So that was literally no more thought than Luke Skywalker and George Carlin. And I just put them together and it worked. So, yeah. So Luke Carlin is the main character. He's, he started out as, uh, you know, in his late twenties and I sort of started him. I think of him as being my own self when I was sort of in my early Mm thirties. So he's just sort of tripping his way through life and, trying he's an aspiring cartoonist so i obviously had to strain some brain muscles to find the motivation for that had to really stretch to get to that character (laughs) yeah exactly uh so he's sort of doing the the same thing that anybody is when they're uh, uh, struggling for a goal he's working you know retail jobs and food service jobs and all the while spending nights trying to accomplish this goal that he has Hey, so when you when you've been working on this, did you ever find some little job that you loved, like your little side job? Was there ever one you really enjoyed? Like a day job? Yeah. No. What was the one you hated the most? <laughs> oh, the one I hated the most was when I worked at Best Buy for sure. That that is with a bullet my most reviled job that I've ever had. It was terrible. Was it the Best Buy in Salinas? It was. I think I bought something from you. You sucked at that job. <laughs> That's probably true because I didn't give a shit. Oh, that'd uh, be funnier in hell if that was true. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, the, the, what I said was true, not what you said. But no, yeah. I actually, <laughs> the one I have now is actually not so bad. I work for the county, so it's you know decent pay and good benefits. But yeah, Best Buy was a 
horrific experience. Which is funny because when I was younger, I probably would have loved working in a Best Buy. Yeah, but not when you're 34. Yeah. Five, you know, <laughs> when you're a teenager and you have those um, employee discounts and things like that, sure, it's it's kind of fun. Yeah. But you know, when you're <laughs> a quote unquote adult, it's it's a just a terrible experience. Oh yeah, you know, one of my uh, one of my closest friends, and he's also one of my most educated friends, is now working in moving furniture. And I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, you've got a doctorate. What's going on here? So, yeah, and, you know, that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, the job market is also difficult. I mean, even for people who are highly educated, it's just not that easy to find jobs these days. I live in terror of ever losing a job again because I'm like, I'm 44. Mm-hmm. I know I know what happens at my age. People don't touch you anymore, you know? Right, you right. Know. There's definitely that ageism that happens at a certain point, absolutely. Especially for a job moving furniture, I would imagine. They'd... Yeah, I would. I would look. I would look second. You know, two a couple of times at a guy that age looking to move furniture or something. I'd be like, hmm. I get a twenty-two year old. You know, half your price. You exactly. Probably, yeah. <clears throat> and but, not have to worry about paying him his disability when he throws his back out. And I'm not saying you can't be in good shape in your mid forties. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm not. Right. <laughs> well, I'm also perspective that a um an employer a possible employer may have on somebody that age too no it's um it's funny because you know my company we are looking at expanding our presence in california and every time you know we go look we got to be in the bay area and then the vice presidents up north go well yeah but people there think they need to make a hundred thousand a year and i go they don't think that that's what they need to make to live there yeah so to, you, make, to eke out a like a, yeah. a modest living, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm not even talking about an extravagant living. I'm talking if you want to live further than Dublin, going towards the bay, <laughs> and you don't make a hundred thousand dollars a year, you're eating tuna fish three times a day. Yeah. Yeah, and tuna fish for breakfast is no good. Yeah, you're like splitting a power bar, and those are your two meals. Yeah, that's and and you have six roommates. Right. Yeah. Having never been in a band, I never had to live like that. Well, that's good. <laughs> let's let's talk about your column, Breadcrumbs from the Void. Who, sure. do you, who do you publish that through, and what's that about? So that's through a literary magazine called Five to One Magazine. And it's it's a writing column, a writing advice column, but I do it from a very satirical standpoint because it's it, I call it a tough love writing column. Mm-hmm. Because I'm basically just berating people who are reading it, telling them that they're lazy and worthless, and if they don't get up off their asses, then they're never going to accomplish anything. So there are, I hope, little pearls and nuggets of wisdom peppered throughout, but for the most part, it's just me railing against the people who are reading it, which is kind of fun. Yeah, that's that's entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and what it is. I mean, I, I don't necessarily intend it to be educational because, you know, who the hell am I to to educate people on writing, but it's certainly entertaining. I hope at least if you read it, because that's, that's how I'm intending it to come across. All right. And we talked a little bit about it, but let's cover Mr. Butterchips again, real quick, where people can sure. find that and what, what he's up to and what he's all about. Yeah. So that's Mr. Butterchips is published monthly through online magazine called drunk monkeys and so, again, he's just sort of this stand-in for my own views on, you know, politics and life in general, told from, you know, sort of a surrealist, humorist standpoint. And so that's published at the beginning of every month from Drunk Monkeys. Well, one of the things I was going to point out is that kind of 
the last real big push in Alton indie comics was was the '90s. There's still stuff out there. Yeah. But but at that point, people were looking for them and actively pursuing finding them and zines and this that and the other. Right. Uh, first off, probably because it's a lot easier to self-publish and make a slicker-looking uh, magazine now than it's ever been, so you don't really get the charm and the roughness of the old alt comics. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But there was I a mean, thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, there's a, people are still doing that, and especially as of late, there have been uh, a sort of plethora of smaller press and vanity presses cropping up, which is fantastic to see places like uncivilized books and retrofit comics sort of these um you know labors of love from creators who just want to put books out there by people that they enjoy and they um find to be fascinating so there's been quite a few in the past couple of years and it's sort of been this renaissance for independent comics and graphic novels lately which has been a lot of fun to see yeah well that's what i was going to try to build towards was the fact that it's easier to do it now than it was back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, there's there's kind of a lost charm to just the little photocopied zines that were an 8.5 by 11 folded in half with construction sure. paper covers and, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, but nowadays you really can, I mean, through Amazon and other, other places, just come up with a book idea, put it together, publish it, have it ready to go digital and print without as much trouble. Yeah, now, and... You well, know, I was going to say, that being said, before you I, before I let you go and give me sure. your answer, <laughs> sure. is, does, do you think that's going to put out more bad small press comics, and is it is it dangerous to small comic publishers for it to be that easy, or is it going to, because there's going to be so much, will the cream rise to the top? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm going to speak to your curmudgeonly sensibilities, because mm -hmm, I certainly mm -hmm. have plenty of those as well. Uh, you know, I think it's a double-edged sword in a way where, yes, I think the the best ones will still tend to rise to the top. But having said that, there's also a lot of shit that becomes really popular as well. Mm -hmm. And having that ability to self-publish and, you know, pretty much anybody anywhere can put out a book regardless of the quality or, you know, any kind of editorial input or revising or uh, talent at all, you know, they can put stuff out there. So there's just this vast ocean of uh, material that's out there that you're wading through at any given time. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff out there that's absolute garbage. And, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that there wasn't garbage out before, but now there's, you know, there's no real gatekeepers. There's, yeah. there's no hurdles that you have to jump to put a book out there. You, if you want to put something out, you can, like you said, through Amazon or, you know, there's uh, Kablam or any kind of, you know, self publishing, you know, partner printer that you can work with. So yeah, I absolutely think that it has given way to a bunch of not so good books and that makes it, it can make it more difficult to get your stuff, your own stuff seen because, Again, at any given time, there are just there are literally millions of other books and web comics and web series that people are having to, you know, trudge through to get to you. Well, yeah, that's I mean that absolutely the the noise to signal ratio is much higher. I mean, just yeah. in in everything, just just the amount of shit uh, competing for your time. I mean, right. 
you know, between, you know, I mean, I talk to you know, independent comic creators like yourself, web series creators, small filmmakers, the uh, other podcast hosts. Shit, there are thousands of hours of stuff to get through. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you could spend every waking minute online and <laughs> not even discover a fraction of what's out there. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it's that's I mean, it's it's a blessing and a curse, as they used to say on Monk. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, but it is. You're, you're right. You have to swim through oceans of shit to find a, a, a clean nugget of something to hold on to sometimes. Yeah, it's it's the muck and the mire of, you know, yeah. fine publishing and indie publishing these days. And well, again, you know, it's great that there's been this, you know, resurgence of creativity and, and people coming out, but... Yeah, again, it makes it a little more difficult and makes you have to work a little harder to to try and get your stuff seen. So you work with a you work with an editor that you you hire yourself to give another look to your stuff, right? Yeah, I I, I work with like I said, Francis Lombard from mm-hmm. Ant Express. So we work together on decades of inexperience. Um, the editor, founding editor from Drunk Monkeys, who I began working on Mister Butterchips with, was. Um, Matthew Garuki, and he then handed it off to a very talented editor named um, Colleen Carney. So I work with her now on Mr. Butter Chips. But I, I find having that second look is 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 kind of crucial to putting out something that's good. You have to have that beta test. And um, my wife actually majored in in literature, um, and she's been a fantastic uh, voice for me. Um, a sort of second reader and giving me notes and she's completely expanded my outlook on how I, I approach writing too. Yeah. Uh, my wife writes and she's written a, a biographical story about um, our daughter's death a handful mm. of years ago. And she also wrote a bagel cookbook. So it's a pretty broad spectrum. Oh, different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she has friends that, well, I mean, you know, just going back to like talking about working in the County, she made friends with some people who were aspiring writers. They all worked together at, the, at Santa Cruz County. Mm-hmm. And so they all beta read each other's stuff when they, when they're working on new things. And again, it's anything from somebody's novel to my wife's bagel cookbook. And they'll, right. they'll put it through and go back and forth. And um, I think it's a very daring thing to open yourself up to criticism from people. And I think that's why probably a lot of people don't do it. Absolutely. If, if yep. you were to if you were to give advice to people like, hey, I've got this idea. Should I have, you know, should I give it to an editor? How would you respond to that? Uh, you know, it, it is a a harrowing and what could be a traumatic experience to have somebody else look at your book because there is that very real possibility that they will take one look at it and tell you that you're garbage and not talented. So, and I think as a creative person, that's always the first place that you go in your mind that you think people, how you think people are going to view your work. So it is incredibly scary to do that, but I think people should, if not to an editor, you know, if they don't know an editor necessarily, I think like your wife has done building your own community and building your own group of writers uh, to look at your stuff is important. And and you have to do that. You just, because if you're not comfortable, you know, giving it to other people to read, you know, either other friends or an editor, then how are you going to put it out in the world? Mm -hmm. So that's, 
an integral first step and you just have to get past your own insecurities. And I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to achieve, but you have to do that if you're looking to work in this industry in any capacity. Yeah. And I think if you can't, if you have trouble trying to get an editor to look at it, you're really going to freeze when you have to go in front of cold readers and try to sell it to them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, that's, that's even taken me years and years to get past, to get to a place where I was even comfortable showing work. And, and again, it's it's not an easy feat to achieve, but it's you have to do it if you're going to be in this industry or any kind of creative industry. If you're, you know, a musician or, you know, again, a dancer or an actor, it, it's a you have to do it. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I want to talk about that real quick that you point out for anybody. And I'm going to include myself in there, but you know, kind of gratuitously, that anybody with a creative uh, drive at all we do kind of assume our work sucks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, podcasts are absolutely included in that. Um, yeah, because the, the you're always – I know it's that sort of um, trite adage that, you know, we're our own worst critics, but it's true. And, and it's very easy – it's much easier to criticize yourself and think that what you're doing has no value than it is to have some confidence. It's much easier to be negative. Mm-hmm. So – so, and it takes a long time, I think, to, you know, for me, I've gotten to a point where I'll never think my work is great, but I've gotten to a point where I can tolerate it enough for other people to see it. And I think that sometimes that's the, the best that you can hope to achieve. And if it is, that's fine. Yeah. Well, what because I was saying, I, when I was saying I, I included myself as an artist, I wasn't talking about podcasting. I was talking about my macaroni sculptures. Oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Those are um, important pieces of work, I think, as well. Yeah, to somebody. My mom likes them. Yeah. And and you know what? And that's all you really need in life. That really, that really is. Yeah. That place on the refrigerator is a highly coveted spot. And if you could find that place, then Mm -hmm. more power to you. Yeah, I I think that's pretty important. Because, you know, are like save the dates and, you know, bills that need to go on there. So if you find your artwork on a refrigerator, you're doing okay. Yeah, no, that's pretty good stuff. Hey, so let's talk a little bit about uh, terminology and phrasing and stuff. Um, the, the Ape Show, the Alternative Press Expo, yeah, was originally meant kind of deal with like alternative comics, as they would have been called in the '90s, because everything was alternative in the '90s. The music, <laughs> final shirts, the whole bit. Yep. Alt um, has kind of taken a new route to being more of a dirty word now, though. Yeah, yeah, with the alt right and yeah, we'll just. Know. Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's the big puncher, but, I mean, alt is being used as a way to make, well, it's just a way to now say Nazi without right. calling a Nazi a Nazi, you know? Yeah. Um, do you think that's going to damage the word overall, or what What do you see going on with that? I don't think so, only because it's a pretty specific context that you're speaking about it when you're talking about Nazis as opposed to an alternative press. Now, I think personally i think the idea of alternative comics and alternative music is is a little bit silly and sort of a misnomer in a lot of ways because what are you an alternative to i mean i guess the mainstream was the idea initially but a lot of that work that was initially dubbed alternative became mainstream so at that point what are you an alternative to so i think that idea uh of alternative art is a little bit silly. I, you know, I tend to, 
gravitate more towards the word underground. I think that holds a little bit more value as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I don't think it's going to damage work, you know, now that alternate, you know, alt-right and, you know, alt-neo-Nazis are associated with that term. At least I hope not. Alternative Um, facts. Alternative facts, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, I mean, it certainly has a negative connotation these days. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, That's true. Yeah, I was just I was curious about that because you know I I was almost thinking like these days I I might even just start calling it the indie press expo just to move on. Sure, yeah, and and you know I guess I compartmentalize it a little bit more than some other people may just because you know as you did we sort of grew up with alternative meaning something completely different. But you know if you're a twenty something now or a teenager now, alternative you know takes on a completely different meaning for you. Yeah. Um, when we were in Canada uh, for my birthday, it was during the march in Virginia. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, here we are, Americans in a foreign country during that. So that was not fun, you know, having to look around. Because everybody watches American news in Canada. Cause, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they're in that major media market, and it is important what happens here. And then when we got back, we went and did a um, a small comic convention in Stockton. Oh, and, okay. And a kid dressed as the Red Skull was like up for, and I, when I say kid, I mean he was like eleven or twelve. Was oh, up, okay. So not- was up, yeah. So a kid was up for an award, and I was talking to his parents. I'm like, God, you have no idea how much time we had to spend pulling iron crosses and shit off his costume. Yeah, I'm sure. To, yeah. He, and, you just... know, that's, that's sort of the, the sad part, too, is people who, you know, cosplayers or, you know, what have you, have to be more conscious about that. Maybe not sad, but, you know, because it used to be so innocuous to a degree where, you know, a Nazi was a villain. If you yeah. were dressing up as the Skull as a Nazi, you were a villain. And it, it has become a point of contention now uh, to even, like you said, do something as, as simple as cosplaying, which... Yeah, it's, it's kind of sucks. Well, the fact that we're even having a conversation about whether it's okay to be a Nazi hater or not. Well, right. Yeah. yeah that's the thing, too, is the, the whole um, Antifa, this idea that anti-fascism can be a, a negative thing. We fought a war about this. You should be against fascism. I don't understand why that is even a, a conversation that we have to have these days. Yeah. That's, that's just that's... my mind. That's one of the things I've been running into lately. It's I see like you know, and look, I was a Skinnerd fan when I was a teenager, you know. Sure. Um, so I mean, I own shit with that with that uh, battle flag of the Confederate States on it. I, I wouldn't now, but back then it was a different time. But yeah. when I see that flag or a Nazi flag or those flags, I just want to look at people and go, I want you to make no mistake about this: the people that carried those flags killed Americans. You cannot right. be a patriotic American and carry that flag. Absolutely true. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, you saying that you bought a Leonard Skinner album that may have had a Confederate flag or something on it. There's a world of difference between that and hanging a Confederate flag in your room or having a Confederate flag on your truck or something like that. I, I think those are two vastly different ways to. Well, I think you know, in, in the 80s, you could have a Confederate flag because you were a Skinner fan. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think it would be yeah. it, it wouldn't look well in reflection. But its meaning at the time wouldn't be as stark and hateful as it would come across now, I would think. 
yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, and that's that's why I try to say like, look, you know, me a culpa. I, you know, I've owned a T-shirt with a Confederate flag. It was a Skinner shirt or whatever, right. you know. Uh, I get it, okay, but let's let's now we can't do that. Let's look at this realistically. Yeah, know? we need to call a spade a spade these days because it's it's be that line has been drawn in the sand at this point, you know, and and I think that's maybe that's okay <laughs> that that's happened, and you are either for racism and you know bigotry and homophobia and you're either, you're either for those things or you're not and you know what that's a decision that you have to make but make no mistake even you know then they try to say first amendment and freedom of speech and that and that's fine sure you can say those things and you can preach those things but you are not free from consequence from having those opinions no you're absolutely not and uh, here, the the thing that amazes me is they want to use first amendment rights for themselves but not for other people yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah there, there are some very hypocritical stances out there. Yeah, it, it just amazes me. And and yeah. I, I would like to just say real quick, I don't do politics very often, but if your boot heel is on somebody else's neck when you are forcing them to do a display of patriotism, that is not patriotism, that is fascism. Absolutely. That's, not, that's no longer freedom. Yeah. That's no longer, like you said, that's no longer American. It's no longer what... You know, these troops have fought and died for, and then they're referencing those troops as a way to stop protests. And it's, yeah, it's just mind-boggling. And the funny thing is, like you said, you know, I was never all that political either. And, you know, I think something about this election cycle and the current state of this country has emboldened a lot of people to start becoming political because it's been absolutely necessary. Yeah. Which yeah, is a, it's just a weird time, I guess. And it is, sir, but it makes for good stories and comics, and so, you know, that's, I suppose, a, a bright spot. <laughs> well, you know, and, and maybe this is the price we pay for all of us being uh, disaffected by our politics. Yeah, I, I think that's there's something to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so uh, here, here's a little bit I'm trying to work in from the live show as I've taken all the oxygen out of that conversation. Um, <laughs> on the live show, we always do a quick check-in with what are you geeking out about? So it's uh -huh. just like, what what are you into right now? What's big on your list? So, Alex, what are you geeking out about right now? Well, funny segue from what we were just talking about, uh, and, I, and I'm sure this has been inspired by uh, the state of events lately, is I've been going back and reading Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which is absolutely relevant for the the current geopolitical <laughs> storm that we're in and it's just a brilliant book i mean it really is and you know calling something genius or brilliant is, is a little bit i don't know hoity-toity for me but it really is just a fantastic book so you know when i when i get really into something i tend to go full bore so i've been listening to interviews and reading interviews with him and watching him watching videos of him talk about it and there are just some really incredible insights that he has about the creative process and and you know what he went through hearing these stories from his dad and then you know translating them to the page so that's absolutely something that i've been geeking out about lately yeah, I haven't looked at Mouse in a long time. It's probably oh, it's, I probably should give it another another read here pretty soon. You should. And one of the incredible things I was actually talking with my wife about this, one of the things that I just found out recently, which just is kind of incredible, 
is that he drew them at the size they were printed, which, if you've seen the book, is not that large because standard comic book pages are drawn on 11 by 17 inch pages. So pretty big pages when you compare it to the comic book size. But he drew them at this, you know, almost like a letter, you know, eight and a half by 11 size because he wanted it to feel like a diary. So he did it on stationery with a, you know, fountain pen. And when you read the book and you look at it, it just, it makes it all the more sort of visceral to, to know that, which has been kind of cool. So obviously I've been geeking out about it, you know, judging from the way I'm going on about it yeah. right now. Well, and that's one of those books that, that elevates, you know, uh, pop culture junk art, like comic books to an art form. Yeah, absolutely. And especially yeah. at that time when, you know, Marvel and I mean, Marvel and DC still have a stranglehold, you know, on the American market to a degree, it's getting better. But especially at that time when it came out, which I think was, you know, the early 80s or even maybe late 70s when it started getting serialized, there was there was not much out like that at all, as opposed or um, aside from, you know, the underground comics that had come out in the 60s by, you know, Spain, Rodriguez, Spain, Rodriguez and Crumb and Gilbert Shelton, and all those guys. But mm -hmm. the, the auto bio stuff, the slice of life stuff that art was doing or people like Mar James Atropi who did Persepolis, you know, that was, those were such um, different things than what was happening at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you see more comics like more varied comics in Japan and uh, Europe. Oh yeah. Than yeah. You do Any here. other country, you know, you can say comics and that is a venerable respected art source that is, you know, thought of as just as, you know, um, beneficial as something like novels or films or anything like that. But if you say comics in America, you know, everybody automatically thinks Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of where the word graphic novel, I think came in too, is so people could kind of go like, Hey, don't look at the word comic. Look at this. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that mouse was one of the main proponents, if not the main one in bringing that term around. And I know a lot of comics artists in America sort of despise it because they just want to call it comics. And I understand that, but the term graphic novel, especially here, I think is an important distinction to have because it does state that you're not drawing Captain America or the Hulk. Mm -hmm. So so I think it, maybe it is a silly term or whatever, but I think it's an important term to have, at least until that perception and that mindset shifts, which it's starting to a little bit. But, you know, by that time, the term graphic novel may just be so ingrained in the culture that it ends up sticking around anyway. Yeah. That's um, I just had a conversation with somebody. For those who follow mainstream comics, uh, DC Comics is getting ready to cross over the Watchmen with their regular DC universe. Oh yeah, I think I read something about that. Yeah, well, and there's uh, there's an actor we know in Canada that I the only comic book he's ever really read and loved was Watchmen. So I sent him that story. Oh okay. And he, and he asked me. He asked me. He's like, "What?" He goes, "I think it's a fail." What do you think? And I'm like. Watchmen is one of those books that I say elevated the art form to it is a pure work of art in that genre. Because yeah. it's, it's a superhero comic, but it's not a superhero comic. It's it's a deconstruction of superhero yeah. comic, which is what I really love about it. And, you know, I mean, say what you want about Alan Moore. The guy is an incredible writer. Well, he's a mad genius. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, yeah. The thing is, like, Watchmen has one book where... 
if you look at the first panel on the first page and the last panel on the last page, you can work back to the middle, and they are actual deconstructions of each other as you go. Yeah, yeah, and that's what he was, he was sort of satirizing, you know, superheroes. It's not, I, I don't necessarily even consider it a superhero book because I think it's, when you do that, you're, it's a little bit of an insult to the book, and it's sort of a devaluation mm -hmm. of what the book actually uh, accomplishes. So I don't even consider it a superhero book. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you. I reread it every few years, and I still, every time I read it, I see stuff I didn't catch before. Yeah, it's absolutely one of those books. Yeah, uh, so that's that's where I came down on that one. Um, all right, so Alex, we're getting ready to wrap up on time here. If, sure. If somebody were to come to you and ask, hey, I you know I've got an idea, or I want to be you know I want to do comic strips, I want to do some you know stuff like you, what are some quick pieces of advice you would give? Don't wait for permission. Put something out there. You know that's like we were discussing a little bit before. That's the beauty of the internet. Put up a website. There are free hosts like um, WordPress or Blogspot, if people still use that, or Tumblr. You can do it. So don't wait for somebody to tell you that it's okay. Just take the initiative. Put something out there. If you have a project that you want to do, just just do it because you know you you have to be your biggest champion. Nobody's gonna put you. you know, nobody's gonna hoist you on their shoulders and tell the world about you. So just you know get off your ass. And, and do something if that's what you actually want to do. And the other thing is don't rush it, though. You know, if make sure that your work, the quality of your work is at least tantamount or, you know, to, to what's out there. Because you don't want to put yourself out there and be known as somebody who does subpar quality work. So it, it's okay to wait a little bit before you do that. So make sure your work is good and then put it out there. And, you know, run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. And let me ask you this. Should somebody wait to perfect their artwork or should they go ahead and try to get something finished first? What do you think is more important? Um, I, I, I don't like the word perfect necessarily. So I would say hone your skills. Make sure that you have something of at least some quality. And at that point, definitely put something out there. But you know, take the time to make sure it's good before you do that. Okay. And that's what and, I was hoping you would say, because a lot of times yeah. people let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And if you do sure. that, you'll never finish anything. Exactly. That is absolutely my stance is if you wait for perfection, you're never going to be done. Cause yeah. I can, I still look back on things that I've done and I can find things that I would change now or little imperfections or, you know, things that I may have done differently, but that's, that's the process that's the nature of, of this, of artwork in general. So yeah, perfection is definitely uh, the enemy of art. Mm -hmm. And then do you still work uh, pencil, pen and paper or are you on computers now? What's your, what's your method? I, I'm old school. So I still do traditional. I, I started drawing pen on paper. I still do pen on paper. Uh, obviously clean up a little bit in Photoshop. So, cause you have to, your work has to be digital these mm -hmm. days. So I do a very small amount in Photoshop um, add some gray tones at times in Photoshop, but the vast majority of the artwork is just done traditionally still. Yeah. Do you use like old style fountain pens or do you use markers or what do you use? So I started trying to use brushes and that takes a long time to perfect yeah. <laughs> and, and, or not perfect, but even, you know, get some sort of proficiency uh, at all proficiency with it. Right. Yeah. So 
uh, and I've gotten to a point where I do use brushes sometimes now or brush pens, but I found Micron marker pens, which have a little bit of that, that give that brush nibs have. So a lot of what I do is with Microns now. Yeah, there are a lot of nice uh, markers out there. I don't draw as much as I used to, but I've started dabbling again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably been 15 years since I really drew with any consistency. But I'm 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 playing with it again, and you know, playing with different pencils and pens, and yeah, you know, software and this, that, and the other. So yeah, there's so many out there now. Like you said, you know, you can experiment with different pens and different brush pens and different uh, dip pens if you still want to try that. There's just so many out there now. So just find the one that you know you enjoy and that works for you. All right, cool. So um, if people want to find you on the internet, Alex, where can they look for you at? My website is alexschumacherart.com, and I am on Twitter and Instagram at ajschumacherart. Awesome. And is are, are your books available on Amazon, or where can people find those? The graphic novel I did in 2013 is available on Amazon, The Unemployment Adventures of Aqualung. Um, otherwise, you could find Decades of Inexperience every Friday on AnticsPress.com and Mr. Butterchips uh, monthly on Drunk Monkeys. That is awesome. All right, everybody else, uh, you know, get out there, check out Alex's stuff. Um, I really like his artwork. I'd like to see him do a horror comic, but he doesn't agree with me on that. So, you know. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do it for you, Jeremy. <laughs> I think your artwork would look amazing. That that almost that cartoony style. With a really serious story, I've always loved the juxtaposition of the two. I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, everybody get out there, check out his stuff. You can find us at geekishcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast. Alex, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Sorry if I was a little hazy. I'm working through the coffee right now. But I, yeah. <laughs> thanks we're, so much. We're on. both in the same spot. I mean, it started <laughs> off slow, but I think it ended up well. So, Yeah. And I really I, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Guys, uh, check us out uh, Thursday night. We will have a live episode. Dominic Davy from Tsunami Bomb will be on. Nice. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a fun guy. He does a lot of really cool horror comics and stuff, too. Cool. Yeah. Uh, but until next time. Geekish Cast is a Vias and Victor production and is part of the Astro Panda Productions Network. You can find us now on SoundCloud and on Blog Talk Radio. Our theme music is taken from the song Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zaius. Check them out at reignofzaius.net. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.